Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Britain has a new prime minister again. It's third in two months. And Rishi Sunak has had a whirlwind of a week. On Monday, he won a hurriedly organised contest to become leader of the Conservative Party without a single ballot being cast. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. The following day, Mr Sunak stood in front of the glossy black door at Number 10 Downing Street and addressed the public. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. It is a noble aim. And I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes, nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister, in part, to fix them. And that work begins immediately. Yesterday in Parliament, he went head-to-head with Sakir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, and battered away demands for a general election. Why doesn't he put it to the test, let working people have their say and call a general election? Our mandate is based on the manifesto that we were elected on. A mandate that says we want a stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders and levelling up. That is the mandate that I and this government will deliver for the British people. It was only at the start of September that Mr Sunak was locked in a battle with his predecessor Liz Truss to become Britain's next Prime Minister. But after a calamitous 44 days in office, marked by U-turns and political and economic blunders, Ms Truss resigned from office. A former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr Sunak's principal focus will be on filling a giant fiscal hole. But his task doesn't stop there. He inherits a Conservative Party riddled with rifts and a country craving stability. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, how will Rishi Sunak lead Britain? Later, I'll speak to Matt Goodwin, a pollster and academic, on how much the chaos unleashed by the Conservatives is affecting the polls. But first, I wanted to talk to Matthew Holehouse, The Economist's Britain political correspondent, about what the Prime Minister's first few days in office tell us about the shape his premiership could take. Hi, Matthew, and thanks for joining me. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So what have Rishi Sunak's first few days in office been like? 
Something that's really coming across is that this is going to be a pretty cautious government. What we've seen in the first couple of days is that he's really building himself into something of a defensive position. His three predecessors were toppled effectively by their own parties after setting out some quite ambitious agendas, which then collapsed around their ears. And so whilst he has some pretty gargantuan objectives, they're very well defined, and he hasn't set out a sprawling agenda to remake the country. He said that his priority is going to be restoring the trust of the British people in politics and tackling the whole the public finances. Beyond that, he's really running something of a lowest common denominator administration, providing as little as possible to, to split the party. So whereas Truss had set out this big agenda of supply-side reforms, she wanted to do things like permit fracking, to liberalise rules around planning, the development of infrastructure, Sunak has taken all that off the table, essentially because it rubs his own MPs up the wrong way. So whilst he's got some really tough decisions to make about tax and public spending, the rest of it is he's really seeking to avoid conflict. Mr Sunak's picked a unity cabinet, pulling together ministers who are all shades of blue. Who are some of the key players? And what does that say about the direction he wants to take? Will it pay off? His cabinet picks really do reflect this desire to unite the party and prevent the factional warfare which felled his predecessors. Previously, uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss comprised cabinets of their close allies, a sort of winner-takes-all construction, and, and left their opponents out on the back benches. His is very widely constructed, ideological diversity of social liberals and some from the right of the party. And he's tried to upset as few people as possible. And he's done that by giving lots of people their old jobs back. By our tally of 29 members of the cabinet, 24 had previously sat around the cabinet table. And of those 24, 15 are doing exactly the same job as they used to do. So he's not bringing in fresh blood. So that means you've got people like James Cleverley staying on as Foreign Secretary. You've Dominic Raab coming back as Deputy Prime Minister, Michael Gove, key operator within the party, back at his old job at the department for levelling up. The problem he has is that by pursuing unity, he's sacrificing competence, and he may actually get near them. This is really seen in the appointment of Suella Braverman, who was the Home Secretary under Liz Truss, had been a flag waver for the radical right of the party. She was fired by Liz Truss only a week or so ago after she admitted circulating sensitive Home Office papers outside the confines of government. Now, that's a breach of the ministerial code. She lost her job. It appears that Rishi Sunak has basically done a pact with her, and in exchange for her support and backing him over Boris Johnson in the leadership contest, she's got her old job back. Now, she's become a real target both for the Labour Party and for his opposition within his own party, of people saying this is essentially an error of judgment and, critically, it undermines his attempt to create a wholly new administration to draw a line under some of the, the sleaze and errors of the past and present this as a much more sort of competent and slick and trustworthy operation. In his address to the country earlier this week, Rishi Sunak recognised that mistakes had been made by Liz Truss during her short spell in charge. Was that the right thing to do? And to your ear, listening to political apologies and how they land, did he say enough? He said she'd been restless in her pursuit of growth, but reckless might have been another way of putting it. It was a fantastic exchange almost between Truss leaving Downing Street on Tuesday morning and Sunak arriving, because in her speech, she made no apology whatsoever. She turns up and she says, you know, basically, I was right. I wanted to fix growth. Growth is a problem in this country. And therefore, I did what I did and walks off. Now, Sunak turns up and says, you know, I really want to pay tribute to Liz because her instincts were right, but mistakes were made. So he's really trying to tackle this idea that because 
she wanted good things, i.e. growth. You can overlook all the disastrous consequences that followed from her budget. I thought it was quite an interesting and subtle critique from him. It was a necessary thing to do because everybody knows the consequences that have followed from the trust budget. And he's got to do a big repair job on the public finances with Jeremy Hunt, the chancellor, who he's reappointed. So if he did not acknowledge the cause of that and did not say, as he did, that it is his job to fix it, uh, it would be very, very hard to explain the logic of the things that are going to follow in his premiership. So it was both a sensible thing to do, but also incredibly politically necessary, I think. Let's talk a bit more about the man himself. He's 42 years old. That makes him Britain's youngest prime minister, certainly in the post-war period. He's the first Asian PM too. He's also a practising Hindu with a meteoric ascent behind him. I remember being introduced to Rishi Sunak by David Cameron, the former Conservative leader, who said to me, this man is the future of the party, so you'd better get to know him. What's behind that phenomenal rise to the top, do you think? He's known as sort of a pretty fastidious character. He's made a big play at how much he likes data. The fact that he has a Bloomberg terminal in his office gets lots of attention as a sign of the fact that he knows about markets. He's been helped by a huge amount of political cunning. He portrays his decision to back Brexit in 2016 as this act of great bravery when clearly, actually, it was a pretty smart bit of positioning. And he's been helped by an enormous amount of luck. He got his break as Chancellor because Boris Johnson fell out with his predecessor, Sajid Javid. And he's been helped by the fact that actually this party had a big ideological clear out. He backed leave. Lots of his contemporaries and those above him back to remain. And that basically has stunted their careers. And so somebody who is very personable, pretty able a good communicator, but also was seen as ideologically correct, actually cleared the path for him through the ministerial ranks. Do you think there's a difference in the way that his own side views him and what the public perspective is? He had unusually good public ratings during the COVID pandemic. And that was in large part because he was responsible for doling out something like £450 billion The swift intervention of the Treasury did save lots of jobs and lots of businesses that would otherwise have been destroyed. So it's not surprising that his personal polling reflected that. He did a good job at contrasting himself and differentiating himself from the Johnson regime by really emphasising his meticulous personal nature and this young and urbane persona in contrast to the gentleman's club atmosphere in the rest of Downing Street, if you want to put it that way. But, you know, that's vulnerable. We are going to be looking at a pretty serious period of retrenchment in the public finances. I Means you know, that, that sort of goodwill which he had accumulated during that period, which was already looking to start to fray actually as time went on, actually is at risk of taking a pretty serious dent. Rishi Sunak's very rich. He's married to Akshata Murthy, whose father founded Infosys, the Indian technology giant. There's a £730 million wealth tag attached to the couple. Given that the unofficial motto of the party during the cost of living crisis has been, we get it, do you see a tension here? The Conservative Party is used to having people that would be seen on any normal measure as being rich around it. But his family wealth is something like 100 times that of what one would think of as a rich cabinet minister, right? That is problematic. But I I think a different way of conceptualising this is that whilst this is a party which is intensely proud and relaxed about the fact that it has produced Britain's first Asian prime minister and is seen as real sort of triumph for the Conservative Party's model of diversity and integration. The thing that it finds more difficult to digest is that Rishi Sunak, by product of his education and his career, really does represent 
one of the winners of globalisation, as it were. And this is a party which over the past six years has become increasingly uncomfortable with or even hostile to globalisation and increasingly vocal about standing up quite aggressively for what it perceives as the losers of globalisation. Rishi Sunak's life is that he studied at Oxford and then he went to Stanford. He worked at Goldman Sachs and he had a green card, which allows special residency in the United States. This was a party that liked the idea of London as the ultimate global city and a place where internationally mobile people wanted to come and spend their money. And the country thrived and profited from that. And the parties turned against that. And so that is where the tension with Rishi Sunak comes from. Not so much his wealth, but rather this sort of ideological change, I think. He's coming into office at a time of what he himself has called an economic crisis. And he said he wants to put economic stability and confidence right at the heart of his agenda. But he's relatively tight-lipped on how he's going to do that. Do you see any clues as to what a Sunak agenda would look like in practice and what the driving momentum might be? One of the products of the campaign was that he didn't actually have to say anything in public. So quite what the mixture of cuts to public expenditure versus tax increases is going to be when the Chancellor unveils his statement is not yet clear. We do know, however, that he he staked a huge amount of political capital on getting the raise in national insurance. It's an open question where he keeps that cut or decides to reinstate national insurance And the other big question is the energy price freeze, which was going to be for two years under Truss's original plan. She cut it back to six months. They need to decide what goes in place on that. You might run us through some of the really urgent problems he faces. We talk about that in-tray, which is more like Pandora's box for an incoming prime minister at the moment. Certainly Ukraine, the National Health Service, relationship with Europe, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Am I fishing in the right waters? Yes, and there were clues of this in, in Truss's speech where she basically pointed to some of the unexploded bombs that he's got to deal with. You know, No British government is going to resile from its support for Ukraine, but there is a big question over the defence budget. Truss wanted that to rise. Sunak has not tied himself to that. That is a conversation he's got to have with his party. On Northern Ireland Protocol, Sunak has always said personality can do a lot. He knows Olaf Scholz, for example, from when they were both finance ministers. Liz Truss has actually opened a window on negotiations. It was one of her few successes in office. We know that Sunak, when he was at the Treasury, was the least hawkish on doing battle with Europe over the Northern Ireland Protocol. But it's the same dilemma that has faced his predecessors on Northern Ireland and Europe. What do you think Britain will look like under Rishi Sunak? There's such a lot of hope on his shoulders to save his party. But it's really a vision for the whole country that he's going to be judged on, isn't it? I think one of his virtues is he's not promised a great transformation. We've had three prime ministers in a row, really, who've each promised a grand new settlement with the British people and that they would use their time in office to remake British society. And it's all ended in tears. And actually, he's gone for a minimal offer almost. A good result for him would be that he manages to stabilise the public finances and eliminate the so-called idiot premium on British government debt, restore some sense of order and discipline and competence to government, manage to pull public services through a tight winter, prevents meltdown in the Conservative Party and ensures that it suffers nothing more than a pretty modest loss at the next election. If he can pull off a victory based on where the polls are at the moment, that really would be quite something. One way of looking at Sunak is that he's something of a post-populist prime minister in that he isn't setting out to promise the earth, promise to remake the country in steel and glass as Boris Johnson did and it all fall apart. He's being very sort of limited in his aspirations and, and that possibly is a sign that he might get some of it done. 
Whether or not he achieves his ambitions will have consequences not just for Britain, but for the party that Mr Sunak leads. Recently, the Conservatives have taken a tumble in the polls. Some have put their popularity at its lowest level in history. That's a shock for many in the party, given that a string of election wins has kept them in power for the last 12 years. The most recent was in 2019, when Boris Johnson led the way to a landslide victory. But it was his scandal-heavy premiership that took a hammer to the Tories' numbers. With the next general election not too far around the corner, Conservatives will be thinking about how to repair their image in the eyes of voters. Someone keeping a watch over the electorate and their intentions is Matt Goodwin. He's a pollster and a professor of politics at the University of Kent. He was also appointed to the Social Mobility Commission, an advisory body by Liz Truss, and he's counselled prime ministers in the past. Matt Goodwin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. The country's witnessed months of Tory turmoil. Just how destructive has that been to the image of the party? Uh, And what does research tell us about the way that voters are reacting? Well, the events of the last month have been extremely damaging for the Conservative brand. Essentially, the party has suffered a two-punch combination. First came Boris Johnson and Partygate. Now, it's important to remember that before that, the Conservatives were still averaging almost 40% of the national vote. They were dominating Labour among Brexit voters. They were still doing pretty well among working class voters, voters in the North. Partygate, however, shaved off about six points from the Conservative vote. So they slumped into the low 30s. And then Trustful or Trustonomics shaved off about another 10 points. It was more damaging than Partygate and Johnson. And so in the aftermath of the The brief experiment with Trustonomics, the Conservatives' average support in the polls plummeted to 20%. In fact, in some of my polling for a while, we had the Conservatives on 14%, which is the lowest level in British polling history. So the wheels completely came off. And I started to see something in the numbers that I'd never seen before. The Labour Party suddenly had a lead among Brexit voters, which is remarkable, actually, when you think about it. The party that campaigned for a second referendum on Brexit, became more popular among Brexit voters than the pro-Brexit Conservative Party. And that's how much the Conservative Party really collapsed, how dramatically it collapsed. And and also, more broadly, there are sort of two laws in political science, really. One is that political parties that are divided lose elections. And what we also saw is this perception that the Conservative Party is a bitterly divided party. It's no longer unified by a coherent ideological message. Some MPs want to level up. Some want to stay focused on the South. Some want to increase immigration. Others want to lower it. Some want to prioritise cutting taxes. Others want to maintain taxes where they are and spend on public services. So that perception of division also came through in the polling But secondly, something else that came through in the polling was a widespread view that the Conservative Party is simply no longer competent on the most pressing issues that are facing the country. Now, if you look at the economy, the cost of living crisis, crime, immigration, the environment, on all of those issues, the Conservative Party's ratings over the last month have collapsed. In fact, in one poll, I found that only 5% of voters backed Liz Truss and the Conservative Party on the economy and over 40% back Labour. So, you know, we've just been seeing things we've never really seen before. And so Rishi Sunak really inherits a political brand that is very damaged and in the eyes of quite a large number of voters, deeply toxic. 
So what explanation do voters give for why they're turning their backs on the party in all the ways that you've just laid out for us? If there was an election tomorrow, the Conservatives would suffer a defeat that would be worse than their defeat to Tony Blair in 1997. There would only be a couple of dozen MPs left in the House of Commons. That's because two things are happening simultaneously. On one side of this political realignment that has been unfolding since the Brexit referendum, the Conservatives have been losing those working class, older, non-graduate Brexit voters. And on the other side, the party has been losing even more support among middle class professional Remainer types in London and the university towns where its support was already weak. So those two trends have essentially collided and have pushed the party to these historic low points that we're seeing in the polls. And is a new Conservative leader in Rishi Sunak going to allow the party to turn over a new leaf? A general election is expected either late 2024, maybe early 2025 uh, at the very latest. What's the best that he could hope for? One of the problems Rishi Sunak has is this very damaged political brand. But also we must remember his ratings are actually not as strong as some people think. He comes in to office having held net negative ratings, meaning more people dislike him than like him. So he is not really necessarily the big popular election winning figure that some people within his team would like the country to think. However, he does have a chance at unifying his party, which he's clearly been trying to do through the cabinet appointments that uh, he's put into place. I think that matters. Secondly, in terms of strategy, he's gone back to the 2019 manifesto. He's talked about levelling up Brexit migration. That matters in terms of putting back together that electorate like Humpty Dumpty. And thirdly, he is trying to project over and over again economic competence and credibility. So he's got a chance. But of course, as we also know, the big wider wins in the global economy and Britain's economy are also working against him. He will have to introduce, I suspect, sweeping tax rises and public spending cuts. And that is a very toxic formula in British politics that will make his task even harder. Mr Sunak is coming under pressure from the opposition parties to call a general election now. In the name of legitimacy, should he call one? He's got quite a thin mandate, hasn't he, in the way that he came to power? Well, there is an argument that he lacks legitimacy. I think However, it's important to remember there have been moments in history before where we've passed through a number of prime ministers and not held a general election. So Rishi Sunak, certainly within the context of our unwritten constitution and president, he doesn't need to go to the country, but he is vulnerable. He comes into office without the support of Conservative Party members, without the support of voters, and also without a formal leadership vote among Conservative MPs. So he is in a position that will make his task harder than it might otherwise have been. I think you believe the Conservatives have two pretty bold choices if they want to regain votes. One is to double down on the core votes who put them into power and, as you put it, try to be all things to all voters and please nobody at all. To get electoral success, though, doesn't Mr Sunak need to bind together a very broad coalition of voters who could be liberal metropolitans, europhiles, millennials, ethnic minority voters, people who just want the government to be effective and have a civil political discourse. Which way would you go? Well, I think that's a dilemma in a nutshell. There is a view that the Conservatives, because of the 
toxicity of Brexit, of Boris Johnson, of Liz Truss, that they really need to double down on the voters who elected them in 2019. And that means really going after working class voters in the industrial labour heartlands, pensioners, people without university college degrees, and people who are well outside of London and the university towns. However, that is now clashing with a more recent view, particularly in Team Sunak, who say, well, look, because of the scale of the crisis facing the country, there is, for the first time since the Brexit referendum, an opportunity for Rishi Sunak to actually reach out in a wider way to try and reconnect with the big cities, university towns, professionals, Britain's rapidly rising minority population, the young Zoomers, millennials, and so on. And maybe economic credibility and competence gives him the pathway into doing that. And and that's a strategic tussle that is playing itself out within Westminster at the moment. And the only way that Rishi Sunak will really get a sense as to which one of these he needs to follow and will follow is what happens at the local elections in the spring, when we'll get the first real piece of evidence about how brand Rishi is going down in some of these areas, and also more generally in the polling, and to see just how quickly, and and if at all, Rishi Sunak can close this gap with the Labour Party among these key groups of voters. At the last election, 2019, Boris Johnson painted the traditional Labour heartlands, that red wall, blue. Now, popularity there is plummeting, as we've been reflecting. How much does Rishi Sunak need the red wall to win the next election? Is it possible, really, to balance the interests of those seats and the so-called blue wall, that's the Liberal Tory caucus in the south of the country? I don't think there's any way the Conservatives can hold power without holding a big chunk of the red wall. The reason I think that is because there are lots of voters in London, Oxford, Cambridge, Manchester, Sheffield, the big urban cities, as well as in Scotland and large parts of Wales, who have been turning against the Conservative Party ever since Britain voted for Brexit. If you look at the country over the last 10 years, even, And it's a similar story, by the way, in America, university graduates, highly educated liberals, big city dwellers have been drifting away from right wing conservative parties, while working class voters, non-graduates and pensioners have generally been trending towards them. Now, that's going to really mean that if Rishi Sunak loses the red wall, he's going to have to hope and pray that he can win back a big chunk of those commuter towns on the outskirts of London that have been drifting towards Labour over the last three or four elections, that he can make some progress in London, which to me seems almost impossible, and that he can win back some seats in Scotland, which again is just an incredibly difficult thing for the Conservative Party today after 12 years in government to do. So for all of those reasons, there are people within the Sunak camp and elsewhere who are saying, look, the only way forward for the party to hold power here is to try and and stabilise the vote in some of those areas so you don't lose all of those blue wall, urban, middle class areas. But you also maintain a very tight grip on those red wall areas and perhaps even expand them. And that gives you a reduced majority of, say, 20, 30 seats in the House of Commons, as opposed to Boris Johnson's more emphatic majority of 80 seats in 2019. And that 
that I think that sort of halfway house strategy is probably where they're going to end up zooming in on because there's no other real way that they can hold power in parliament without doing that because nobody is going to sign a coalition agreement with the conservatives for the conservative party today it is majority or bust nobody is going to work with them the shadow of boris johnson looms over the party i've been following politics for a good quarter century. And I can't remember a time when Boris Johnson wasn't either aiming at his next step on the political ladder or actually getting there. He's flirted with making a return as leader in this latest race. He pulled out, but he is still popular among Conservative MPs, or at least a good chunk of them, and party members. Do you see any chance of yet another Boris bounce, another comeback? Well, never say never, but Boris Johnson has weakened his brand over the last few weeks and months. There is a pretty widespread view among the most pro-Boris Conservative MPs that he managed his attempted second comeback disastrously, that he, in the words of one MP this week who told me over lunch, that he marched them up the hill and then left them stranded there and suddenly declared that he was not going to run for the leadership. And that has left a bitter taste in their mouths. And I think it's left a a great degree of frustration. Also, across the country, let's not forget Boris Johnson is a very unpopular figure. His net ratings are not good. And partly that's a result of Partygate and the scandals in number 10 during COVID-19. But I think also it's a sense As another MP said to me, that even when Boris Johnson was in power, he made a number of decisions and policy choices that didn't really reflect the interests and priorities of his 2019 voters. They wanted less immigration. He liberalised the immigration system outside of Europe. They wanted a serious strategy for levelling up the industrial heartlands. He never really understood what that was about. And many of his MPs complained that too much money was going into Northern England. And I think that too has weakened his brand among people who might otherwise be expected to perhaps help him do a third comeback. We've talked a lot about Tory turmoil and the outlook for Rishi Sunak, but what do you think the long-term consequences will be for the party? And do you think this is one of those collapses which takes a very long time to come back from? I'm thinking of the Conservative years in the wilderness from 1997 when New Labour swept to power. Is it one of those epochal kind of changes? It currently feels like the Conservative Party, philosophically more than anything, doesn't really know what it is anymore. It doesn't really know who it's trying to win over and what the big unifying message is for the country. So the party has fallen back on fiscal conservatism and economic competence. And that's fine. And that's what's needed given the current crisis. But beyond that, there's very little actually that unites the different factions within today's conservative party. So it feels to me as though the party's running out of road. Electorally, The party has, in my view at least, shown very little interest in holding many of those voters who often for the first time had voted Conservative in 2019. And I do think comparing Britain's Conservatives with America's Republicans is is an interesting comparison here because on one side you have the Republicans who have been doing actually a good job at holding their working class non-graduate voters. They still have commanding leads in the midterm polls 
over the Democrats among those voters. And obviously, that's helped by the fact that they're not in power. But on the other side of the pond, Britain's conservatives have really lost all of those voters, not simply by being in power, but by showing a general disinterest in what those voters want and struggling to give them a policy offer or a leader or a message that they find compelling. And when parties reach that point, often there is a heavy defeat to follow and often period in the wilderness and in opposition is what is required to, to refocus minds. The only way in which the Conservatives avoid that is if through Rishi Sunak they can once again find that genuine moment of reinvention. That is the only way that the Conservatives can achieve what no other political party in the history of British politics has ever achieved, which is five successive terms in office. Matt Goodwin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. And do let us know what you think. Is Rishi Sunak the man to restore Britain's fortunes? And what might that take? Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. You can read more excellent reporting from Matthew Hurlhouse and the rest of the Britain team about the Rishi Sunak era on The Economist website. An Economist subscription is the only way to enjoy all of our journalism. And we have a special offer just for our podcast listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and from Rishi Sunak's old student stomping ground, California, which is where I find myself this week, this is The Economist. The Economist. 